So it's a new year. We're starting a new series. And like I was saying, one of the most exciting things in this Christian life is when you have these moments where you can look where you are and look back where you've been and realize that you haven't just been wandering aimlessly, but that God has had a plan this whole time. And you can see how the pieces have been fitting together. Maybe not exactly as you planned, but a better plan is taking shape. You have those moments. And I feel like this is one of those moments for me. We're starting a new series, and we're starting a series in the book of Acts. And I understand even more why we're here now and what we've been doing that brought us here more than I really understood before. As you probably know, we've been calling this the year of community. Where in our mission statement as a church, the first words are to be a community. That's our desire. And so we've been doing various things, most notably our Wednesday night. All are welcome Wednesdays. It's a year of, of community. We've understood that the world needs community and there is a great need that people are feeling in and outside of the church for um, friendship and to be connected, especially since the pandemic. People have felt very isolated. We've realized that we need to be a community. But here's the thing. We're not the only ones that are doing that, as in there's other ways to get community. Actually, just like this morning before I got out of bed, I was on Facebook and there's one of these like West Island groups and someone's like, where am I supposed to meet people? And people are listing all these like places of like community and the church was one of them listed. The church, just one of many places where you can find community. And that's really how a lot of people view the church. A lot of people I've noticed around here don't really necessarily have a negative view of the church. It's more of just, yeah, it's, it's one of the places where people build community if you're into that sort of thing. That's pretty much the mentality that I've picked up. It's just, it's just one option among many. It's just one place that someone might find community. And in that sense, it's true. There are other places. There are social groups and other religions. Where, like you can join a gym or a fitness group. Or there's special interest groups. There's probably in every town and there's probably a community center. I don't even know what goes on there. But if you go there, you're probably going probably gonna to find some community, right? So community can be found in lots of places, and it's good that we're trying to open our doors to be a place where community can grow, because that is a very central function of the church, the Christian church, the church of Jesus. But here's the thing that I really want you to know, as it pertains to today and where we've been. The church... Well, what is the church? So if you're um, not new to the Bible, you probably understand that you have an Old Testament and a New Testament, right? And in the Old Testament, there was no church. There was God's people. There was community. There was definitely people gathering. There was community, but there was no, there was no church. Church hadn't formed yet. And someone might be like, well, that's because Jesus didn't come yet. True. 
But that's not all. Because then you get done with the Old Testament, right? And then you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Tracking with me? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four stories of Jesus' life. You had Jesus called his apostles, his disciples. His disciples was actually more than just the 12. He had at least 72, and he probably had even a good number more than that. He had a bunch of followers, and they were no doubt a community. They lived together. They ate together. You know, they got in arguments, like the normal thing that happens if you're in a real community. They functioned in a lot of ways like a family. They did the community thing pretty well. They followed Jesus. Jesus preached. Jesus lived uh, a life of example and a life of righteousness. Jesus died for our sins, the sins of the world, to pay our debt. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus again hung out with his community and he ascended into heaven. But this community, all through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, through all of that, was still not the church. Do you understand that? It was a community, yes, but it was not yet the church. And this is very important because the church has something that had not yet happened that makes the church different, unique, from all other places where someone might find community. With that being said, let's open up to the first five verses of the book of Acts of our new series that we will probably be in this book. I say, I don't really know. Like I say, we're on a journey, but I would bet around a year or so. We're going to be here for a while. Um, it begins like this. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. So by the way, Acts is kind of a sequel to the book of Luke. It was written by Luke. So this is kind of like what happened next, right? Uh, so that's the former book. The former book he's talking about is the book of Luke. So let me just start this over. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days he will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In a few days, they're going to become the church. They're not yet the church. They're a community. There is a gift that has been promised. That's what it says in, in uh, verse 4. Wait for the gift my father promised. There's a gift that's been promised. And upon receiving this gift this community would become the church. Something unique from all the other communities that you will find in the world. Wait for the gift my father promised in this gift. Verse five, John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized 
with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Hold that thought for a moment. Just recently in our conversation on community, this is all part of the journey that God has had us on. I see that now more than ever. Recently in our conversation regarding community, we together walked through the Lord's Prayer. And the reason we did that as our year of community is we understood a big thing that God has for his people is gathering together to pray, praying together. Prayer is a corporate thing as much as it's an individual thing. And that's why in the Lord's Prayer, it's kind of like our Father. It's like we together. And we looked through these different elements of the Lord's Prayer, and we really discovered more than ever that these are heart postures that God wants us to have before him. Hallowed be your name means, God, show yourself to us. We just, we just sang it, didn't we? Show us your glory. We sang that song 15 minutes ago, 20 minutes ago, and in the song we're saying, hallowed be your name. Show us, show your power to us, show your power to the world. Hallow your name. Your kingdom come, the goodness, the promise of you. Let it be in this world as it is in heaven, goodness, righteousness. Show yourself, show your power, show your glory, transform this world. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread, we need nourishment. These are all things we walked through, this is a recap. We need nourishment, we need you nourishing our hearts, giving us faith, providing everything we need for life and godliness. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us, help us be a people who forgive others because these go hand in hand. Once more, these are heart postures, right? Ways that we stand before God, wanting his power, wanting his glory, acknowledging our sin, acknowledging that we have nothing to offer, but we come with arms open, asking, right? We walked through all of this. And then something that was actually a bit of a discovery for me, the last sermon that we had on the Lord's Prayer, we looked at the Lord's Prayer in Luke chapter 11, and we saw that Jesus equated the entirety of the Lord's Prayer with one single ask. Maybe you remember, maybe you don't. Jesus took the entire Lord's Prayer and then followed it up with some words, and then he said, based on all this, Even though you guys are evil, which is something to consider, but that's just something Jesus said in passing. You guys are all evil. You know that. Even though you are evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And that was Jesus' summary of the whole Lord's Prayer, asking for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit satisfies all those desires. The desire for God to show himself to the world, the desire for our souls to be nourished, the desire to feel the forgiveness of God, to know the forgiveness of God, the desire for the world to see the fruit of righteousness in our lives, in his kingdom, seen here. All those desires are fulfilled with the giving of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus equated it all. All that to say is all this time we've been working up to something. Together, we've been working up to a certain ask, a certain desire for us to have before God. Baptize us. 
The word baptize means submerge. Jesus said, John baptized with water, and you know what that is because you can see it, right? Someone goes under, someone comes up. The water cleanses, you know, like what water does, just physically speaking. Goes under, comes back up. Not just like splashed, but like full on. The word means submerged, immersed. You know, churches argue about those sorts of things. Some churches say sprinkle, some forget about that for a second. I'm just saying that's what the word literally means is submerge, immerse. You know what that looks like. John did it. But that's a picture of something else. Jesus is saying, you know, you know that concept? We're going to be doing that in a few weeks here. We've got people who want to get baptized. By the way, if you want to get baptized, reach out to me or Pastor Jeff. Um, you know what that is? There's a greater baptism that is not done by the hands of man. Um, you'll be baptized by the Holy Spirit, submerged. What does that mean? What does that mean? Hold that thought. Hold it for a second. All, all roads are, are coming together here. I really see it more and more. Another topic of conversation has been a word called revival. Hold on one moment. Hold on one moment. There are certain words out there, and I already said a number of them. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Revival. There are words that some people, they sit on the edge of their chair, and some people kind of like step back and like, uh-oh. I'll get to that in a little bit. These have been controversial matters in church history, and there's reasons for that. So just hold that thought. We'll come back to it. But yeah, we have been using this word revival, and through the course of various sermons, you've heard about different revivals in history. Some months ago, uh, Chris talked about the Moravians. I think it was last year. I uh, talked a little bit about the Jesus People revival. Um, we discussed the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, David Brainerd, if you remember some of those stories. We've discussed revivals. Now, a revival is not the discovery of something new. I mean, just right in the word, you kind of see it, the word re. The, the concept of revival is not the discovery of something new. It's the rediscovery of something old. You get that? Revival is not the discovery of something new. It's the rediscovery of something old that perhaps has been forgotten or maybe left up on the shelf and it's began to collect dust and it's been replaced by just tradition and status quo religion. It happens from time to time. This is an Old Testament and New Testament truth. God's people have a way of forgetting. One of the great revivals in the history of the church happened about 500 years ago in the year uh, 1505, there was a young German law student who was taking a walk on a dirt road towards the city of Erfurt. Um, Martin Luther was his name. He was a law student, and uh, he was kind of having questions about his life, though, because even though he was a law student, he wasn't quite satisfied with that, and he had thoughts about ministry, but wasn't so sure about that. His parents really wanted him to continue with law. Anyways, the sky turned black, and there was a storm 
and Martin got scared and lightning struck right in front of him and threw him. I don't know totally how that works. If it's like an air pressure thing or like there's something called like ground current. But lightning struck right before him and threw him. And he cried out, I'll become a monk. <laughs> like basically like, help me, help me, I'll become a monk. Okay? And so he did. He became a monk. And he was, uh, he was devoted by the way, he was, he was, um, he, he was devoted, and uh, trying to find, I got some of his words here, he was devoted as a monk, but he was not at peace, it wasn't thus far a good experience, this is what he says, by his own words, he says, though I lived as a monk, without reproach, meaning I did everything right, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. Uh, I read this one account of how he'd like, he would go and he would like go to like confess his sins. And when the people saw him coming, they were like, oh no, Martin is here again. And on one occasion, he was there for six hours confessing his sins. And uh, um, I read this, like, quote from, like, this was, like, another priest said to him, you expect Christ to forgive. Come here next time with something to forgive. Blasphemy, adultery, stealing, instead of all these pettiness, you know. Like, come with, next time you're going to show up, actually do something wrong and then show up because we're tired of this. But... Martin actually did understand something. Um, he understood that God required holiness. He got that part right. But there was still something very much missing. This is actually um, a quote from him. He said, I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. So he says, I secretly... <laughs> He said, secretly, if not blasphemy, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. Like that was his secret heart posture. Um, he said, indeed, as if it's not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, meaning the Ten Commandments, without having God add pain to pain by threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. So basically, he, there was a deep part of him that did not like God. He didn't like this idea of a God who required righteousness. He didn't like that. I can relate with that, to be honest. Before I was a Christian, deep down, I did not like the idea. I did not like the idea of a God who demanded righteousness. Just leave me alone. Let me live my life. You're not, I don't need you to rule over me. <laughs> These are things I remember thinking. Maybe not externally, but deep down, those are the things I thought. I kind of hated the idea of a God who I needed to submit to for righteous sake. Anyways, that was, that was Martin Luther, even though he followed all these religious rules. Um, 
And um, this is something else he said. Nevertheless, I beat opportunately, probably didn't say that word right, I beat upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. As in the, the book of Romans he's talking about, written by the Apostle Paul. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There he was focused on this concept of the righteousness of God, as it speaks about in Romans. It was a concept he didn't like, but he devoted himself to discovering what it meant just the same. And the question he had was, what does it mean, the righteousness of God, which it is through faith that the righteousness shall live? And he says this, there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which God merciful, which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is right, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here, I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me said from this point forward he could read the Bible and it had a whole different light. And the, the discovery, actually, let me clarify, the rediscovery. He didn't discover something new. There was a rediscovery of something that had begun to collect dust and gotten lost. And it's really something very central. The righteousness of God that he requires, he does require righteousness from his people. It's a gift that he's willing to give us through Christ. The righteousness that he requires, it's not something that we must beat and endure and climb great mountains and confess six hours of sins for us to achieve. Instead, it's something for us to hold out our hands and receive it as a child receives a gift. It's the gift of the gospel. Jesus died for your sins, and by faith we believe that. And by faith we're counted righteous. We're made righteous through the giving of the Holy Spirit. I tell you this story, for one, um, to remind you of the gift we have in the gospel, the gift of Jesus dying for our sins and a righteousness, the righteousness that is indeed required to stand before a holy God, that righteousness is given to anyone who would want it, to anyone who would receive it through faith and not harden their heart to keep it away but accept that gift. Um, I tell you that story of Martin Luther for the first reason of reminding you of that. But second, to clarify again that Revivals happen when old truths that had been lost are rediscovered. The, the word revival, actually. Let me clarify a little more what I mean by that. And this is actually just simply the opening words of the Wikipedia article on Christian revival. These are the very first words of that. Christian revivalism 
is increased spiritual interest or renewal in the life of a church, congregation, or society with a local, national, or global effect. Hear that? It's when a church or a Christian group um, is renewed with increased spiritual interest, and this part is important, with a local, national, or global effect. The change that happened in Martin Luther had a global effect, and maybe you know some of that. Here is why I can't say that we are in a season of revival. Uh, um, God, his spirit is with us. I see him leading us. Yes, yes, yes. I'm very thankful for that. But I'm also rather discontent in some other ways because I don't see a significant local, national, or global effect. I'm just, I'm just calling it as I see it now. I do see some. I'm not trying to discredit the work of God. But sadly, in the eyes of many, the church is just one option among many of places to find community. Not bad. Not bad. But for most people, the way they see the church We're not really persecuted around here. We're more just ignored. No one cares. That's largely the vibe that I get when I'm out having conversations with the people of the city. No one cares. That might be speaking hyperbolically, that might be an exaggeration, but that's generally the vibe that I pick up. And part of the reason that I'm excited about the book of Acts is because that is not the story of the book of Acts. I feel like we've done so many things since I've been a pastor and the church in general. We have done so many things of strategizing and planning and programming, all things that are good, all things that I don't regret, things that I would do again things that are helpful, things that have had a certain degree of effect, and things that God's Spirit has been in. I'm not trying to discredit. I'm not trying to say God's Spirit has not been with us. I'm not trying to say any of that. But what I am saying is when I read these opening words of the book of Acts, and I keep reading the book of Acts, I see that the church was given a gift that was promised, and this gift... This gift would have an impact on the world. And here's a word. Here's a word that I'm not going to so much define today. It's one of the many words and concepts that we're going to have to take our time to define. Like baptism of the Holy Spirit, we're going to have to take our time with that one. Here's another one. Power. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is a promise that this community would receive power. You will be clothed with power, is how it says it at the end of Luke. And in a couple verses later, which you'll see in the coming days, Jesus himself said it, you will receive power. And you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. It's not just something for first century it's not just something for the first century church and the apostles. 
It's to the ends of the earth. A promise, a gift. And the gift is that of power. Power for the church. And because the church was anointed with power everywhere they went, no one ignored them. Everywhere they went, there was never an occasion where the people said, oh, that's just one option among many of places to find community. No, no, no. Actually, when they got to Thessalonica, something that was said about them was, these are the people that have turned the whole world upside down. Do you hear that? There is a promise of power for the church. And if I'm being honest with myself, the walk that we're walking in doesn't totally line up with what I read the promise to be. And I'm grieved by that. Honestly, I read it and it seems like the promise is greater than what we currently have. That's what it feels like. A little bit about myself that I feel like I should just get off my chest and get out in the open. I am someone who wants things. <laughs> you know, some people just learn this. Some people want things, but they're just kind of like, yeah, whatever. But some people want things and they like really want things. And it can kind of mess with you. It can be a strength and it can be a weakness. And in my life, it's certainly been a strength at times and it's been a weakness at times. But I've like wanted things and really wanted things. And I've had to learn that there's a difference between like good wanting and like bad wanting, you know. Um, God gave us a house that I'm so thankful for here in Pierrefonds. And uh, the house has so many really good qualities that I really love, um, but um, other than like the really big kitchen, which I really love because I cook a lot, the house is really small, and I do have five children, and there's no basement, and I hear a lot from like certain teenagers, like there's too many kids in this house, you know, it's like actually what they say is there's too many people in this house, it's like this is just our family, <laughs> um, and sometimes like I, I, I think to myself, you know what, if I had a bunch of money, I'd like dig out the basement and build some space there, or build, a, you know, those would be things to want. And I could be like, I, I, I want that, you know? Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with me having those thoughts. There's nothing wrong with me having those desires. But here's where it becomes a problem. It would become a problem if those desires kept me from being happy and thankful for what God has already given. Are you tracking with me? Because God has been so good to our family. We, we have so much to be thankful for. There's nothing wrong with those desires, but if those desires steal my contentment, those desires are what the Bible would call coveting, right? That's not good. So it's good to have a posture of thankfulness, even if things are not the way we would want them to be. But that analogy actually falls short. That's a little bit of an analogy that is really just my way of saying, be thankful for where we're at because God's been good to us and don't be discontent, which I stand by for the most part. However, what I am talking about here is not the same thing as like wanting a bigger house. It really isn't. And I'll tell you why. This desire 
is just the very thing that Jesus told us to ask for. It's the thing that he told us to want. That's the summary of the Lord's Prayer that we saw. How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? This is what he wants us asking for. And if there is anything that I want to lead us in this year as we look at the book of Acts, is a shared posture of desire before God. We as a church, and you can picture this, we are on our knees with our arms open. On our knees in a posture of submission, arms open in a posture of receiving. Um, He has gifted us, he has promised us this gift. He has promised us this gift. He has told us to ask for it. And by the way, someone is thinking, yeah, but we already have the Holy Spirit. The church already has the Holy Spirit. Granted. I mean, that's, that's a longer conversation because part of the questions when it comes to this term of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, some of the questions that come up is, what does it mean? Do all Christians have the Holy Spirit? Have all Christians been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Um, can you get baptized in the Holy Spirit more than once? And it's like, just leave that alone for, for a bit. We're going to... We have a whole book, a whole year to like dive into this. But something I'll tell you now is this. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is an experience of power. It's an experience. You cannot deny that by reading the book of Acts. And the word power is used because that's how Jesus describes it. He says you're going to be clothed with power. As in there's an external sense of power. There's a lot lot, lot to unpack there, and in time, we will. But it's an experience of power, and get this, it's not a one-time thing. When I say I want us as a church asking for it, right after Jesus is speaking here, what do you think the people do? They gather together, and they start praying, and they ask for this. And you know what? It comes just like that. Here's something even more. You might have read when Jesus was baptized with water, the Spirit came down upon him. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit. But actually, if you read, I think it's Luke's account of that, Jesus was actually praying when the Spirit came upon him. There is something about asking, and after the Holy Spirit is given, after the community becomes the church, in Acts chapter 2, as we're going to see, the community is anointed with power with the Holy Spirit, and that community becomes the church. And after that, after that, There's another occasion that happens shortly afterwards where those same people are again asking and those same people are again receiving power. Do you see that? So I don't want anyone thinking, hey, we've already done this or hey, the church doesn't need to be asking for this. This I really feel like is an old truth that we need to rediscover. We've been promised more power than we are now experiencing. That's just a conviction of mine. I am not trying to say that God is not at work among us. I am hearing stories. I've heard some stories of miracles taking place among us. I get it. But here's why I tell you we're not walking in the full promise. The reason I tell you that is most of the people out there aren't even paying attention. 
Does that grieve you? It grieves me to the core. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. And the way that they view the church is just one option among many of places where people gather because they're lonely. Okay? That is not the promise for the church. Okay. I got to wrap this up. One more thing, though. One more thing that that I'm going to be saying now and I'm going to continue to say as we're in this series a lot of these concepts are indeed controversial, especially when you get to the spiritual gifts, which is really like how the power plays out. Really controversial stuff if you hang out among Christians. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, that term alone has caused plenty of conflict. Oh no, revival. Though, again, these things people can argue about. And that is not something new. That's what's really fascinating to me. <clears throat> Christians arguing in conflict about the spiritual gifts and the power of the Holy Spirit, that's been going on for a very long time. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the church that had the most uh, conversations about the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit, as far as that church seemed to be very much experiencing that, tons of conflict in relation to this. It's not new at all for the promise and the power to manifest in a way that immature people um, get into conflict. And why is that, by the way? Why is that? I was thinking upon it this week. If, if a country is going to go to war with another country, what do they invade first? The armory, the airfields. Take out the weapons. Take out the power. Take out the other side's power. Obviously, that's what you want to do in war. I don't need to convince you, if you've read any of the book of Acts, that the gift of the Holy Spirit is the power by which the church will storm the gates of hell. It is the power by which, the way that Jesus said it, he kind of compared, he compared the devil to a strong man Someone stronger will tie him up and will plunder his evil home and set the captives free. By the Spirit, I drive out demons. By the Spirit, the Spirit is our power to bear fruit in this world, to see the kingdom come. It is not by our strength, but it is by the power of the Spirit. So our job is to have a posture of receiving so in 1 Corinthians, when they'd argue about this, argue about this, argue about this, we talked about this. I think Basil talked about this uh, six months ago or so. You have 1 Corinthians chapter 12, gifts of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, gifts of the Holy Spirit. But there's an interruption where the Apostle Paul says, hey, you know what? You got all these spiritual gifts, you got, you got power, you can move mountains, you got prophecy, you got tongues. It's all worthless if you don't have love. These are matters that Christians in good faith disagree on. And for that reason, conflict can emerge, but it must not. So I'm going to lay down a principle that you've heard before here. You can disagree. I would way, way rather have you disagree with me then agree with me in the wrong heart and in the wrong spirit. 
it is totally possible, and you see this in the Bible, it's totally possible to be right but dead wrong. And what that means is maybe you have the theology correct, maybe you have everything right in that sense, but your heart is wrong because you're caught up in conflict. I'm excited about these matters because I think we have the maturity here where we can talk about this. I'm very excited for Wednesday nights when we get together and we have community and we have conversations about this. These matters really do stir on lots of conversation and God works through that. And, and I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to talking about these potentially controversial matters together on our Wednesday nights. But just kind of a principle to lay down here is love and unity is more important than having the right position. So more important to God. Um, that, was, that was the message for the Corinthians, and that's, that's something that's going to help us walk through this series and not go off the rails, right? Okay, so um, I got to wrap this up. Today's message has really just been kind of an introduction of why we're doing this and what to expect. Once more, those terms, namely baptism with the Holy Spirit, as we saw here in verse 5, I realize I've not really defined greatly, but I will. Um, But even more than that, even more than that, more than understanding the theological concept my desire for us is that we would know the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We would know him. We would know the Holy Spirit. 